Georgia's DBHDD reminds people that the Good Samaritan Law can save lives during alcohol and drug overdoses. People are urged to call 911 and stay until help arrives. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. I have to say it's really nice to be back with all of you. Um, If you listen to the show regularly, um, Donna Lowry, who uh, filled in for me uh, at the end of the last week and yesterday, uh, did a great job. Uh, My wife, Janice, and I took an extended trip to New York. We were hungry to see uh, theater again and so got the chance to do that. But I, I have to say it's interesting. We had just done this show on climate change a week ago and uh it was astonishing to come back to Atlanta and be feel relieved that temperatures here weren't as horrendous as they were in New York City, of all places. It was 99 degrees uh, yesterday in parts of New York. So uh, if you don't believe climate change is <laughs> real, uh, you should have been with us in uh, New York over the long weekend. All right. But in coming back, uh, we've put together a panel of great journalists to talk about uh, important political news today. Starting with, of course, my Tuesday partner on the show, Tamar Hallerman, senior reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Hi, Tamar. Nice to have a chance to talk to you again today. Hi, Bill. I'm glad you got your theater fix and that you're back with us. <laughs> Thanks for saying that. Margaret Coker, editor-in-chief of The Current, is with us again. You can read her digital uh, online publication, The Current, at thecurrentga.org. She covers all of coastal Georgia, but also, of course, uh, news from across uh, the state and the southeast, for that matter. Hi, Margaret. Hi. Thanks for having me on again, Bill. Glad that you are here with us. Chuck Williams, WRBL-TV, but a longtime print reporter in Columbus and knows the southwest part of the state of Georgia better than just about any other journalist I know is with us again. Hi, Chuck. Hey, Bill. Good to be here. And I finally want to welcome for the first time a brand new panelist of to Political Rewind, Maya King, who is a politics reporter for the New York Times covering uh, the South. A good place to be in Atlanta, Georgia right now covering uh, politics, Maya, considering that we are absolutely at the center of much is what, of what is happening in national politics. But Maya, just you grew up, I think you said, in Tallahassee, right? Yes. Went to Did your undergraduate work where you were at Howard? And yes. uh, before coming to the New York Times, you worked uh, for Politico. Have I got all that right? You do. You do. That's great. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here and glad to be back in the South. Yeah, it's a real pleasure to have you here. All right, let's get started with uh, the big news. tomorrow. you've been covering uh, the special grand jury like absolutely nobody else uh, in uh, Georgia. And so I want to start with you talking about what appears to be a bombshell decision by Fulton County Superior Court Judge Robert McBurney. Um, Burt Jones, the Republican candidate for lieutenant governor who had been one of the fake electors, uh, filed a petition uh, in court, in McBurney's court. McBurney oversees the actions of that special grand jury, saying that um, Fannie Willis should be disqualified from uh, dealing with him because of the fundraiser she gave to his opponent, Charlie Bailey. At the time of the hearing, Judge McBurney said he found that that fundraiser, the optics of that fundraiser, were, quote, horrific. Uh, And so in ruling, uh, finally, he sort of followed up on that by saying, yes, we are disqualifying Willis or her office from being involved in just the Burt Jones uh, investigation. So uh, tell us more about that, and then let's talk about the consequences and what happens next. Yeah, it was a bit of a surprise ruling. You know, there was a hearing on Thursday involving uh, McBurney, lawyers for Burt Jones and and the DA. And you're absolutely right. He had extremely strong language about this fundraiser. He called it horrific. He called it a what were you thinking moment uh, to DA Willis's face. 
But at the same time, it seems like he was kind of really searching for, for what could actually be done, because the rules in Georgia when it comes to disqualifying a, a prosecutor, it requires what's called an actual conflict, which is different from a theoretical or speculative conflict. And I talked to a handful of legal experts in the lead up to this hearing. Every single one of them said, yes, the optics are terrible, but this is not an actual conflict. So everyone I talked to was not expecting them to be mm-hmm. pulled off this case. But reading McBurney's order yesterday, kind of reading between the lines, it seems like he wants to hold the DA's office to a much higher standard when it comes to this specific investigation, almost holding her to the standard that you would a judge when it comes to dealing with politics, because he mentioned that this is such a high profile investigation. The eyes of the nation and the world are on her. You don't want to do anything to taint this investigation, to make people think that what you're doing is being driven by politics. And no matter what you do with Burt Jones going forward, because you held a fundraiser for his Democratic opponent, no matter what, even if you treat him the same as all the other electors, you know, it, it already seems tainted. So let's just take it out of your hands. Let's appoint another DA's office to deal with Senator Jones. Um, and it was a real rebuke of the, the DA and kind of a rare misstep from her in this investigation. Um, Chuck, the DA's office, in arguing their side of the case, said, look, um, she did hold this fundraiser for Charlie Bailey, but she did it during the primaries before he was the candidate for uh, Democratic uh, nomination for lieutenant governor. Uh, and they said, and uh, Fonnie Willis has not treated him uh, meaning Burt Jones, any differently than all of the other fake electors. Uh, but as Tamar just pointed out, McBurney's attitude is, no, 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 we have got to be careful about optics that might look like this whole investigation is somehow tainted by politics, Chuck. You know, the most interesting line, and I've been reading Tamar's reporting just about first thing every morning, the most interesting line in Judge McBurney's order to me was, the district attorney doesn't have to be apolitical, but her investigations do. Mm-hmm. That is, the, is there a more appropriate line for the state of our country right now, all the way from the top to the bottom, than that line by Judge McBurney? He nailed it. He absolutely put in writing the core principles this nation should be dealing with. He's, I mean, just think about it. She doesn't have to be apolitical, but her investigations do. It's just, it's, it's one of the clearest, best written lines I've seen in an order by a Superior Court judge in a long, long time. Margaret? Yeah, it's, it's, um, it is a real misstep by someone who seems to have, um, seems to have high professional standards. As we all know in Georgia, our DA races are nonpartisan. And for those of us who live in smaller counties, we know our candidates and we know what, uh, what political parties' policies they generally back. But still, the, um, the, the state law says that they're supposed to be nonpartisan as races. And for, for Ms. Willis, who knew that she was going to try and get indictments and uh, secure convictions against some of the um, principals involved in the 2020 election scandals, I, I can't believe that she didn't think that this was going to become a problem sometime this summer when, when she stood up for grand jury. Why in the world she would have, have risked her own reputation for a political fundraiser at a time and place when she wasn't raising funds for herself, when she wasn't running um, this fall. I, I, I can't believe that, um, that she couldn't have foreseen how embarrassing this would be for her this week. Maya, um, and then I'd love to hear uh, others of you uh, respond to this as well, though. Maya, it strikes me that in an ironic way, on one hand, McBurney's order is based on his wanting to be careful that politics does not taint this grand jury. And yet on the other hand, ironically, uh, his ruling is going to prove to be more fodder for the Republicans who have attacked this whole thing as a political uh, uh, maneuver by Democrats all along. And during an election year, no less, which is only going to sort of, I think, up the ante on, on that argument. Um, but, you know, it is a tough spot. And for this, for the scope of this um, of this case to be so just heavily scrutinized and for for D.A. Willis to be calling in just so many different people and leaving no stone unturned. I think this is um, it makes it that much more uh, 
political in scope, but also that much more surprising that this was not really seen before. You know, if you're looking so closely at this, you might also want to take a look at, at making sure that, you know, your own involvement might not also be further scrutinized. And we know, you know, that Senator Jones is obviously the lieutenant governor candidate during an election year. I mean, that's a huge that's, a, that's, that's only going to further the argument here that this is yeah. sort of politically motivated. Um, I wanted to jump in and mention, you know, Margaret said that DA's uh, races aren't uh, partisan, at least in Fulton County, they are. So Fani ran as a Democrat. And so it, it is awkward because you are kind of forced to to declare a side in all of this, especially when she'd been, a pro, you know, in the prosecutor's office for years and never had to do that publicly. Um, of course, no matter what she was going to do in this investigation, she was going to it was going to be labeled as a as a partisan witch hunt. And I think McBurney, who, who's tasked with overseeing this grand jury, is trying to be as protective as he can with this process. It's also worth noting that in this order, um, you know, where he ruled on Senator Jones, he also turned down a request from 11 of the 16 other fake electors who were mm -hmm. similarly kind of jumping on the bandwagon being like, well, if Burt Jones can get out of this, can, you know, take us out of it, too. And, and the judge kind of slapped that down and said, absolutely not. Um, not only is the Fulton DA's office, office still going to be in charge of investigating you guys, but you also have to come in this week and honor your subpoenas and speak to the special grand jury. Could, could Ms. Willis have given a better gift to Burt Jones than what she did with that fundraiser? Because, I mean, now, I mean, Bailey was Charlie Bailey was forming, formulating a message that was going to be Burt Jones tried to overthrow the government of the United States of America. He was an insurrectionist. Well, now because of what has happened with Judge Matt Barney's ruling, the way I understand it, Tamar may know this better than I do. I'm sure she does. That this now puts Burt Jones back at a reset. It's at the first step on the on the ladder. So they've got to start all over. So the chances of between now and November 8th of Burt Jones, this case building against Burt Jones, if there is a case, the chances of that happening are unlikely. So in essence, she has taken away part of the way Charlie Bailey was going to, to prosecute this campaign. And I've talked to a lot of political people across the state. They were giving Charlie Bailey perhaps the best chance of any Democratic nominee to win a statewide office in November based on some of Jones's troubles. Has this now taken away one of the Democrats' best chance of garnering a state office? Well, okay, I wanted to get into that a little more, but before we do that, I, I'd like to know a little bit about the logistics of the next step. So, Tamar, what can you tell us about the process by which there's going to be a new uh, district attorney's office appointed to pursue the investigation uh, against uh, into Burt Jones? And is there anything that prevents the Fulton County DA from sharing everything it's already learned about Burt Jones from whoever takes over? It's unclear a little bit about the information sharing part of the process, but kind of here's what, ha what happens from here. The prosecuting um, attorney's counsel of Georgia will eventually appoint a new DA's office that will step in to take the Burt Jones piece. So at this moment, um, you know, Burt Jones is no longer considered a target of the Fulton DA's investigation. He's no longer being subpoenaed by them. They will not be able to decide whether he should ultimately be charged with a crime because of his role as a fake elector. That eventually will be put in the hands of this next DA's office that's appointed. Yesterday, we heard from the head of the prosecuting attorney's counsel in Georgia, and he indicated that, first of all, that, that no decisions will be made as to whether or, or not an appointment will be made. And he indicated that he wasn't necessarily in the biggest hurry to to appoint somebody. Um, you know, he, he said it might even be kind of premature at this point and that it might be best to allow the special grand jury to kind of conclude this portion of the investigation before appointing a prosecutor. So it may be a long, long time before we um, before we see anything. And it's worth kind of pointing out the interesting dynamics here with the prosecuting attorneys council. D.A. Willis is a member of that. At the same time, this is kind of a, a quasi-state agency that answers to the legislature. Um, you know, Senator Jones is a senator um, who, in theory, kind of oversees that. And, and should he win, he'll become LG. He'll have even more of a role kind of helping oversee them. So it's very awkward political dynamics for them as well.
Um, Maya, of course, it's not going to stop Charlie Bailey. He's already made that clear since Judge McBurney's decision from continuing to attack Burt Jones for his role as a fake elector. It, it takes off the table for the time being uh, whether the special grand jury can be encouraged to uh, release a, uh, a recommendation that there be an indictment uh, for his role in that. But certainly Charlie Bailey is going to continue attacking him as being an anti-democratic uh, uh, actor here. And that's really been the message um, of the Democratic ticket in 2022, that really they're running against a party that no longer embraces, in fact, actively issues democratic norms, lowercase d, democratic norms. Um, and, you know, you get that also from, from Stacey Abrams on the governor's ticket. Of course, Jen Jordan, running for attorney general, has not, has not been quiet about this either in her conversations with reporters or just public remarks. I mean, the message I think that Democrats feel they really have um, an opportunity with in, heading into November is we are the party of democracy. This is a party whose whose own candidates, um, as as Charlie Bailey has already said of Burt Jones, um, you know, run counter to that. Of course, making the case that that Jones was was actively involved in the fake elector scandal, and I think I think that plays very differently with Georgia voters specifically. Democrats nationwide have been making have been making this message, but you know, 2021 and and the saga of of former President Trump you know, trying to uh, overturn the election results in this state is still very fresh on voters' minds. So I I do think that Democrats feel they still have an opening um, in making that argument. So, Margaret, um, here's another question that that I wonder about that we can't answer with any specificity. But um, Burt Jones is the only one who Fonnie Willis and her team are prevented now from investigating uh, directly. Um, But to the extent that they have had this ruling against them. The question is how Republicans will use this to really, really smear the entire investigation um, and how much that might resonate with people who've been watching this so closely out there. Yeah, it's hard to know how how um, these uh, political spheres are going to be used, but of course they, they will be brought out of... Um, brought out and, and thrown quite often as the, heat, uh, as the election um, heats up this fall, you know, the, the rest, I mean, the majority of, of the fake electors list are people who are not in public office. There's obviously some, some um, several um, high, high level uh, exceptions to that, but, you know, state lawyers, uh, mm-hmm. local campaign, uh, mm-hmm. Republicans, finance um, gurus, um, prior county uh, Republican officials. No, I'm not sure that this is going to affect them and their legal futures. I'm not sure it's going to affect them and their um, their own local reputations. But for sure, as as campaign commercials uh, start to heat up this fall, when President Trump decides to uh, get back into the presidential campaign mode or not, I think all of this is going to be fodder for a lot of 30-second spots on, on TV, for sure. Okay, um, just a couple other quick notes uh, moving forward on this part of the the show. Uh, Tamara, just uh, as a side note, uh, we've learned uh, reading uh, uh, the AJC that the Georgia State Bar is now investigating two of those electors, fake electors, who are attorneys, Brad Carver and Daryl Moody. Um, We saw what the New York Bar did to Rudolph Giuliani. They disbarred him. Uh, for his participation in the effort to uh, promote the the fake elector of uh, the fake election or the stolen election theory, uh, so that is going to be another story that everybody will be following uh, very closely. But but beyond that, we now is the electors are going to testify this week. The fake electors, yes, isn't that you've already said that, but so that's not going to change. Yeah, absolutely. But there's a real question of how much they're willing to say and how much they're going to be citing their Fifth Amendment rights not to incriminate themselves. Um, at, at a hearing last week, their lawyer kind of mentioned even confirming their names to the grand jury. 
they're worried that that could leave them, you know, could, could harm them legally because all 16 of them have been informed that they are targets of this investigation and that they, they might be indicted. So I'm curious how much of anything that they may tell this grand jury. But it's amazing to see just how much that's turned into a central component of this investigation. Remember, when Fannie Willis announced this back in February 21, it was really focused on the Brad Raffensperger call and, you know, the abrupt resignation of B.J. Pack, the U.S. attorney, the Giuliani testimony, the fake electors weren't really on our radar. And it's amazing how quickly that's become a central focus here. Well, in part, that's because we learned that John Eastman had used the fake elector strategy in seven states as part of a larger scheme to have Mike Pence disallow uh, in Georgia and the other states, the actual Biden electors and accept the the fake electors. I think it's one of the ways in which the synergy between the January 6th committee and the Fulton County DA have worked together, it strikes me at least. Uh, finally, before we move on, Maya, um, Jody Heiss uh, has been subpoenaed to testify because he was one of the major uh, congressional promoters of the stolen election theory. Uh, he went to court. Uh, citing his privilege to not have to talk about uh, activities that he conducted as a member of the U.S. House. District Judge Lee Martin May said, sorry, buddy, but uh, you can be questioned about your role, extra congressional role in all of this, and if necessary, to make sure this goes well, I'll be glad to stand outside the grand jury room, and if they ask you questions you think that violate that privilege, you can come out and we can talk about them. And it, I think it, it shows just how how committed um, the grand jury is to getting to getting answers. But also, I think to Tamar's earlier point, like how committed a lot of Republicans who, who really were involved in this are in not incriminating themselves and really not discussing it further. Um, you know, this was kind of a question that, that Jody Heiss got quite a bit on the campaign trail. Um, Brad Raffensperger, you know, pointed out um, um, Mr. Heiss's sort of involvement. In, in events leading up to and following January 6th, and it was never anything uh, that Mr. Heiss ever really wanted to touch, uh, that the congressman was ever willing to ever willing to engage with reporters on. But now, um, you know, this is this is obviously behind closed doors, and there's there's only so much that we'll learn from what he actually says. But I mean, it's very clear that he still has committed to to kind of keeping that posture of of preferring not to say anything or incriminate himself, even if in this case he kind of has to. Maya, before we get to a break, um, I'm going to ask you to just take us a little bit behind the scenes at the New York Times on this story, to the extent that uh, this weekend your colleagues Richard Fawcett and Danny Hakim uh, published a major takeout on things that Tamara Course has been reporting on locally for a long time. But it was a big story. Uh, it got a uh, 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 very prominent play in the digital edition of the Times, and it basically laid out this entire case here in Georgia. So give us your sense. Here you are, a New York Times reporter working in the Atlanta office. Um, how, do, how is this story playing, do you think, for your folks in the Times and for the country that reads the Times? Well, it's, it's interesting. I mean, I'll, I, I do agree that was that was a fantastic story. And, and my colleagues, Richard and, and, and Donnie, really just um, did a spectacular job there. And I think their directive was to contextualize this not just for the political minds like us who know every little detail of this and understand how it all fits, but also for the folks in places outside of Georgia and really outside of the South who are wondering exactly what's happening in Georgia outside of the campaigns and why does this matter so much um, for the future and why is it important that this is happening also at the same time that January 6th hearings are happening? How are these two things related? And that story really just aims to answer all of those questions while also pointing out some of the more interesting and kind of funny, like wonky parts of, of this case that in the fact that they involve everyone from a United States senator to, I think, a, a Cadillac dealer, which was in the lead. Um, and that's just I mean, that's great. I think I, I'm learning uh, that is that is Georgia politics. That is Georgia movements in a nutshell, that really anybody could get involved in in any scope, any number of, of things. But but also that 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 is just I think it demonstrates, one, the breadth of that reporting, but also um, to the point of this entire conversation, how deep, how far reaching um, and just how the, just the scope of, of this case and what it what the I think the blast radius of it of it is now and, and what it could be, depending on um, what the what the grand jury's ultimate report is. 
Uh, Chase, let's post a link to that story, if we can, please, on our social media. But, yeah, I loved the line, uh, as you did. (laughs) Here are the the expanding assemblage of characters, they write. A United States senator, a congressman, a local Cadillac dealer, a high school economics teacher, the chairman of the state Republican Party, the Republican candidate for lieutenant governor, six lawyers aiding Mr. Trump, including a former New York City mayor, the former president himself, and— a woman who's identified herself as a publicist for the rapper Kanye West. How could I forget great, Kanye's great publicist? Line. How could I leave? How could I leave Kanye out of this? Uh, it's terrific. Uh, let's take a break. We'll be back with more on Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Having taken uh, about a five-day break from the show, I am really glad to have a wonderful panelist of journalists to help shake me back up and get me back into uh, uh, the mood for talking about politics in Georgia. Tamar Hallerman is with us every Tuesday, senior reporter at the AJC, Margaret Coker, editor-in-chief of The Current, Maya King, politics reporter for The New York Times, and Chuck Williams, reporter for WRBL-TV in Columbus, all with us uh, today. Um, let's talk a little bit about the governor's race, uh, if we can. Um, I, I want to talk, uh, Tamar, about a poll that we saw the other day. Our friend Rick Dent, uh, who's on the show frequently, forwarded to us. Uh, he says that Marquette Law School, or he, he pointed out that Marquette Law School has done a national survey in which they have found that there is little evidence that partisan motivation to vote in the 2022 election has essentially been uh, changed in any way by uh, the Supreme Court's ruling on Roe v. Wade. And, and of course, um, we've seen other uh, data that uh, suggest that that's the case as well. And yet, uh, Tamar, certainly Democrats in this state, from Jen Jordan uh, running for AG to Stacey Abrams running for governor, are going to make abortion a centerpiece, one of the centerpieces of their races. Yeah, it kind of gels with what we've seen from Republicans when it comes to their messaging over the last couple weeks. We really didn't see Governor Kemp or any others kind of dance on the grave of Roe v. Wade. You know, many could kind of mention, look, I'm pro-life, but they weren't like cheering and hooting and hollering from the rooftops. They've really been kind of focused on pocketbook messages when it comes to things like gas prices, inflation. Um, And the polling shows that those, at least at this moment, are the issues that are really motivating voters. Um, It's going to be an open question what will still be prominent and on the front page of every newspaper in October and November as voters start going to the polls. And it'll be a really kind of calculated bet when it comes to, you know, Democrats and how much they want to focus on abortion versus economic issues, especially when they're the party in the White House. Right. They are going to want to put distance between themselves and, and Joe Biden, but they also have to be very careful in kind of how they message all of this. Maya, you uh, wrote a piece about Stacey Abrams and her uh, making abortion a major issue in the campaign. You were at an event uh, at which she was flanked by a number of uh, Democratic state leaders. Uh, She said, quote, Georgia is part of a nation that faces economic vicissitudes. Things go up, things go down. But this law is permanent, obviously referring to uh, the overturning of Roe. And then you say she added that she would ask the state's scores of moderate Republican and independent voters who may be disillusioned with Democratic leadership in Washington to, quote, balance whether your immediate concerns about money outweigh your concerns about your constitutional protected rights. Maya? I mean, I just thought that that was such a a a tell, um, really, in many cases, like that was a an admission on the part of of Abrams on behalf of a lot of Democrats in Georgia to say, look, I recognize that you are placing the blame for economic issues 
in this state at the feet of, of the party in power in Washington. But this is something that we can fix. And now a number of Democratic candidates, particularly for governor, we see it in South Carolina, too, um, with Joe Cunningham, have really just basically made the argument that their veto pen is the most important thing that matters heading into November. And that this, this abortion law is now sort of the law of the land, but enforcing it and its terms and sort of softening its blow is something that Democrats can, can have control over if they are indeed uh, elected to, to the governor's mansion. And, and so I think that was the point that, that, that Abrams was making during that press conference. That was the most incensed I had seen her in a really long time, even though we knew that this was coming. She still seemed very, very, very just passionate um, about this issue and, and went as far now as to say, look, this is something that will last forever. The economy, it hurts right now, but doesn't have to always be this way. Chuck? Look at the economy, and it was interesting. I was looking through some stuff this morning. An overnight walk after the markets closed yesterday, Walmart significantly downgraded their earnings projections for the next quarter. And it was fascinating because they're saying people are now hunkering down and buying food and gas, and a lot of the essentials are going away. You know, that's bellwether to me of what this political season is going to look like because people buy everything at Walmart. And if Walmart's saying, okay, it's food and gas now, that's going to play out in political races all across the country. And I know the Democrats are going to fight like the devil to get abortion top and front and center in this thing. But, and they will in certain areas. There's no question about that. But the economy is going to be so overriding that it's just going it's going to be a hard, hard sell for Democrats to to downplay the impact of this economy. And I agree with just about everything Ma just said on that. Margaret, um, it, it, the, the one statement, I, we, we were out of town. Uh, in fact, we left Atlanta. When we left Atlanta to go to New York, abortion was still legal up to 22 weeks here. Uh, we come back and it's now illegal, virtually illegal the sex, with the six-week ban exception. Um, but uh, I was interested, although Republicans haven't said much, uh, Brian Kemp, I think the word he used was jubilant or joyous, one of those two. Um, and that's about all he said um, and yet, for women who are watching this unfold, to hear uh, him use that word, I, I would think is very troubling to, to those who believe choice is essential to who they are as women. So we didn't say much more than that, but that seemed to me to give Democrats something of, a, of an opening. Um, so comment on that. Uh, but also the fact that what the uh, Abrams campaign is going to continue doing is suggesting that if Kemp's reelected and we have a Republican legislature, this abortion law could go further. Uh, they could do an outright ban. They could uh, take off the table exceptions for rape or incest. And so that's going to be part of how they play this uh, uh, issue moving forward. Yeah, you know, since I've, uh, the last 20 years that I've been a reporter and, you know, been a sort of voting adult in America, I've, I've always been struck by exit polls that show that culture war issues are not actually what voters come out and tell pollsters that has motivated right. them as they are um, they're examining their ballot. However, I have been talking to a lot of young women, a lot of first-time voters um, in coastal Georgia who feel like this is the, the issue that will animate them. It will animate them to get out and door knock for certain candidates. It will animate them to actually go and vote. And as we all know in Georgia, uh, with, when there are tight elections that are going to be decided by narrow margins, every single vote matters. And if this is going to animate a certain uh, segment of, of Georgia society, whether it's first-time voters or whether it is more women, um, that, that is going to end up mattering. It might not be the economy that brings the majority of Georgians to vote, but it's not going to be the majority of Georgians that are going to decide a lot of these um, top-line state races. So I would, I would be, um, I'd be nervous if I was the Kemp campaign because this is going to this is going to hurt them if they need to capture that elusive and theoretical suburban uh, suburban woman vote. Um, the daughters of those suburban professional women, uh, those 
those women, you know, like, uh, like a lot of my nieces, you know, they care about choice. They care about their own economic security. And outside of a short-term recession that we might be in in America, long-term economic security for women uh, requires them to be able to take control of their bodies and take control about whether or not and how they want to start a family. I think it's worth noting that this is a midterm election. This is not a general election year. And I think that might really help Republicans in this race. This is, you know, they tend to be lower turnout elections. It tends to be folks who are already pretty plugged in politically. Um, often, but not always, often young people are, are less likely to vote. And so maybe, you know, they might want to sit this one out or they might not be paying close attention. I'm, I'm curious to see how much abortion kind of changes that, especially for younger women kind of first time voters. Um, I'll also be curious to see how many promises are made from folks like Governor Kemp, um, you know, folks like Burt Jones and stuff about what might be coming in the new um, in the new year if they're elected. Um, now Republicans have kind of gotten everything they ever dreamed of when it came to abortion. So what are they going to do to shore up the, sa- the state social safety net so that it's a good place to be a new mom and a new baby? Uh, Maya, that's a really that point I'd love for you to pick up on, but also pick up on, if you wouldn't mind, the fact that there is some something of a split among Republicans uh, right now over what next steps they might want to take on abortion. I already mentioned there are certainly Republicans in Georgia who would like in the next legislative session to go further, uh, take incest and rape uh, um, off the table, uh, make it a complete ban, not a six-week uh, fetal, so-called fetal heartbeat ban. And if those conversations continue throughout the election season, they might give some voters pause to wonder whether maybe abortion ought to be a bigger issue in the way they choose their candidates. And we can we can harken back even to the Republican primary, where um, very conspicuously during the lieutenant governor debate, Burt Jones said he committed to um, or at least endorsed a an all out ban on abortion. Um, Herschel Walker, who won't serve in the state, but if he does win, will will represent Georgia in the United States Senate, has come out in favor of an all-out abortion ban. And last week in a news conference with reporters even said, I don't know why we don't have a nationwide ban now. I think that's a problem. So it's clear this is on the minds of Republicans. And I think, you know, to continue this conversation about what they will say or what their plans are for the future, that's probably a question that they should be willing to answer, which is, how far are you willing to go with this law? Um, and what does this mean for victims of rape and incest? What does this mean, um, you know, for what is it? What does an all out ban in Georgia actually look like? Chuck, I want to localize this a little bit. Talk to us about this in terms of the second district congressional race, the one district in the state, which really is kind of a swing uh, district. Sanford Bishop could be in some trouble with the new lines that were drawn down there. There's obviously an effort to pass a federal law codifying uh, the right to choice uh, into federal law. How does this play out in that second district race moving forward? It will play out. And and this counters what I said a minute ago about the statewide. It'll play out significantly because there is a, like in the state races, there's a sharp contrast. Chris West, the the Thomasville attorney slash developer, um, who's a 38-year-old grassroots Republican, is has said that he is for an all-out ban of abortion. Um, Democrats are picking up on that. There was an event held here in Columbus last week uh, or a week ago that with political activists here calling him out on that. Stanford Bishop obviously will be pro-choice, a Democrat, entrenched Democrat. I'm, I'm starting to feel like that's Stanford's first name, entrenched Democrat, Stanford Bishop. He's been there 30 years. And um, I said, everything I write, it's, it's, it comes out now. But, I mean, I think that will be a question when they debate. And I don't know how many debates they'll have, but they'll certainly have the one with Georgia Public Broadcasting and Atlanta Press Club. But whatever debates those two guys have, that is going to be a central part of the debate. And it's two very, very different opinions. And, you know, you said it was the only contested race in Georgia. There's some points that are putting that. I think it's Democrat plus two, plus three right now. It was plus seven, plus eight before the redraw of the lines. 
this may be, and Chris West has been saying this, and I haven't talked to Congressman Bishop about it, but this may be the only contested seat in the Deep South. Think about that. I mean, here we are, and this district is a really funky district. It has it has most of Columbus, large chunk of Macon. Then it runs down to Thomasville. It gets Albany. It's it, it you know it's thirty plus counties. It's a it's it's quite a little swath of Georgia. Um, let me. We got to get to a break. But tomorrow, and Maya, take us to the break with a couple. Tomorrow, then Maya. Sure. I mean, I think it's worth taking a second to kind of pause and talk about rhetoric versus political realities, especially when it comes to Republicans in the state legislature. Sure, we have folks like Burt Jones who are saying, yes, they want to see an outright ban. But you talk to Republican aides and and folks in the legislature who are very up to date on the political realities of things. And they mentioned that the heartbeat law in 2019 passed with one vote to spare in the House. Like it just barely squeaked through. And, you know, since then, the margins have only kind of gotten tighter. So I think they realize, even though many of them would like to see outright bans, that it's not going to be in the cards for, for a while here in Georgia. Anything that kind of goes, goes stricter than the heartbeat law. And just to shift over very quickly um, to the to the second district race, I was just going to add to Chuck's point that it is an extremely funky district, that there are a lot of other issues at play <laughs> there, um, particularly uh, in agriculture. I mean, that I think it shows just how big of an industry it is in Georgia, but how important it is also as sort of a political lobby. And I'm, I'm curious about whether or not this will be decided along those margins, but I've heard a lot about the farmer vote in the second district mm-hmm. um, and how redistricting sort of kind of cutting in parts of Columbus and Macon, I believe, into that district could also uh, kind of impact or even offset some of those rural voters. But a lot of what we're talking about nationally will come to play in that district race. All right, we got to get to a break. We'll be back with more in just a moment. Margaret Coker, you've been reporting some really important stories in the current uh, in uh, recent days. From my point of view, uh, the biggest one is the ongoing issue over the building of the Camden spaceport. And we now know that is a Union Carbide has said, we're no longer willing to sell that parcel of land for the building of the spaceport because citizens said in a referendum, we don't want it. We also know that the state Supreme Court is taking up the issue of whether or not citizens have the right in a referendum like that to overrule, to determine for uh, county elected officials whether or not uh, they can cancel out what the elected officials do. So the fact that they're taking this parcel of land off the table, is it as big a deal as it seems to be? Well, it seems to the uh, residents of Camden County, it's a big deal. It's another um, another notch in their belt um, in terms of of their desire to stop using taxpayer money to go after what many consider to be a white elephant economic development deal. However, the whole problem um, that we've been reporting about is this disconnect between the voters of Camden County and their elected officials, the, the, uh, the county commissioners. The county commissioners, in response to the company's decision to no longer have the parcel of land up for sale for the purported spaceport, the commissioners have said, well, we still have a deal on the table. We hope that the company is not backing out of it. So it seems to be now that there are two different sides. There are the citizens of Camden County who voted in this referendum to stop this economic development deal and the use of taxpayer money to pursue it. The company that is the linchpin of all this, because without any land, you don't have a spaceport. And then the county commissioners, several of whom are up for re-election this year, several of whom are, are actually not not even up for re-election. They keep saying they want this to continue. There's a lot of ego at stake here, and it seems like it's the ego of certain county commissioners who keep driving this thing forward, even though, like Dracula, it should have been um, should have been <laughs> dead and buried. But without that parcel of land, it isn't as though Camden County officials have another choice. Uh, or, or, I mean, I suppose they could go be looking, but they've got to start the process all over again. Am I right about that? 
yeah, there's not there's not a whole lot of, of usable development uh, quality land in Camden County. There's a lot of tidal marsh. Uh, there's a lot of private property. There's not a whole lot of empty plots. And the spaceport, this is one thing that, that opponents of the spaceport have said all the time. We have an incredibly fragile ecosystem in coastal Georgia. Mm -hmm. The idea of launching um, huge rockets into space over our fragile coastal Georgia, uh, um, you know, very unique, uh, both uh, inland waterways and people's homes is going to be a disaster. Chuck, uh, this state Supreme Court case uh, is really important and fascinating. Should citizens of a community have the right, having elected the body of officials who are representing them at the commission level, at the city council level or whatever, should they, though, have the right in a referendum to overrule or change what a, those elected officials have done? It's an enormously important case for the state. And it has ramifications all across the state. I mean, look at Cobb County and the Braves. I mean, would I mean, depending on what the Supreme Court does here, would would the Cobb County Commission and the officials in Cobb County have been able to lure the Braves out of Atlanta? I mean, without having the citizens make that decision and had if that means it would have had to be done in public. That's the interesting part to me as a journalist looking at that. A lot of these decisions are made, these economic development decisions are made kind of in a vacuum, and then all of a sudden there's just like drinking out of a fire hose. They come into the public light. One of the things this could do is force it into the public light much sooner, and I think in the spirit of transparency, that's not a bad thing, is it? Um, all right, let's take up one other issue from uh, the coast, which kind of takes us back to the abortion uh, story. Tomorrow, another thing that the current reported this week is uh, when Congress voted in a bipartisan vote uh, to uh, codify uh, the right to uh, choice, uh, it, it, the, one of the people who voted against it was Republican Buddy Carter, who claimed it was unnecessary to take this vote. He said, I came to Congress to vote on real issues that improve Georgia's first district, not rushed legislation based on fear-mongering rhetoric from the left. Tamar? Well, and he was specifically talking about a, a vote to codify same-sex marriage into federal law. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I apologize. Of course. Same-sex marriage. Sorry, I'm still not quite back from vacation yet. <laughs> I, I apologize. <laughs> but this is a, um, you know, this is this is a right that was, you know, that the Supreme Court was the one that that kind of gave people that right in 2015. And folks are really scared uh, based on the the opinion that that. Um, Judge Clarence Thomas wrote where he mentioned, yeah, I don't want to stop at abortion. I want to go after other things like sodomy laws, gay marriage, the right to contraception. And so Buddy Carter in this story from Margaret's uh, awesome website mentioned he thinks this is settled law. He doesn't think it's worth his, uh, his breath even kind of going back to it. But there's plenty of folks, especially in the LGBT community, who are like screaming from the rooftops, terrified that this right will get taken away from them. Margaret, how's this all playing down there in the first well, it's um, it's very controversial, as you might imagine, but but it is controversial because of Buddy Carter's statements after his vote as well. You know, unlike unlike the abortion issue, which never had federal protections from Congress, it only had uh, the Supreme Court decision Roe versus Wade. There is the 1996 Defense of Marriage Act that Congress passed when Newt Gingrich was Speaker of the House, and so. There is some concern about how durable laws are for same-sex marriage, and that's not just among the gay community. It's among people, families, uh, uh, businesses who have gay employees, who have gay family members. And so the Respect for Marriage Act was, um, was remarkable in that in a time and place of, of deep division in our country, there was a huge crossover from the Republican side to go ahead and vote for it on the House side. And... It's interesting that this is something that has been able to cross, um, cross over from both aisles. If you look at Gallup polling, since 1996, when the Defense of Marriage Act was passed, less than a quarter of Americans believed in same-sex marriage. Now we're up to 70% of Americans who believe in it. It seems like settled fact in American culture, if not law. 
Maya, uh, we, we, despite what uh, and the, some of the other conservative justices of the court said about, no, this just applies to Roe v. Wade, this privacy issue that we're dealing with here, there's no question that Clarence Thomas opened the door for any number of, of, of individuals, organizations, to try to get a case moving up uh, to the Supreme Court that would, in fact, overturn uh, the right to uh, same-sex marriage. And I think a number of state houses are paying attention to that now and and sort of mobilizing accordingly. Um, I've also heard from folks that after this, it sort of feels like a slippery slope, whether it's same-sex marriage, um, access to contraception, I think was also mentioned. I mean, these are are things that, to Tamar's point, really have people scared. Um, And you're seeing now a lot of mobilization on both sides, whether it's trying to get these cases up to the Supreme Court to now hear or at least uh, in the hopes that the conservative majority will rule, you know, in their favor or with Democratic or, or just folks on the ground who, who disagree with that, um, you know, actually mobilizing against it to try to codify this and preemptively avoid that. Maya King gets the last word in today's Political Rewind as we run out of time. And let, it, let me again thank you, Maya, from The New York Times for joining us for the first time for Political Rewind, I hope. You'll consider coming back again, Margaret Coker. The current GA.org is uh, the digital publication that you really ought to be looking at. Chuck Williams of WRBL-TV. You can, you can read his stories if you go to the WRBL website. and You can listen to the really wonderful political interviews that he's been doing on what, Sunday nights, I think. Uh, right, Chuck? Uh, with candidates from across the state. And Tamar Ellerman, thank you for uh, reminding me uh, to get my story straight on same-sex uh, marriage vote that Buddy Carter took. We always love having you here. Um, tomorrow is uh, newsletter day at Political Rewind. We're working on it right now. If you want to get it delivered to your inbox tomorrow afternoon, just go to gpb.org newsletters. Thank everybody for uh, listening. We're back again with a brand new show tomorrow. In the meantime, please take care and stay Healthy. Bye, everybody. <laughs>